Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists and the occasional wildlife filmmaker or climate activist to talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and the climate justice movement. So if you've been listening from episode one, you'll know all about the Coffee Connection, but if you don't, please head over to our Instagram page at Coffee with Conservationists, and there's a post over there explaining it all in detail. Today, we've got a new coffee from Hasbeen. At the end of the episode, I'll be talking about them, who they are, and how you can support them. This week, I sat down with Gunjan Menon. Gunjan is a wildlife and conservation filmmaker from India who studied at the University of West England in Bristol. We talked about her film, The Firefox Guardians, her work with red pandas and rhinos, and the importance of visual media in wildlife conservation. Hi Gunjan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. We're going to start it off by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell us about yourself and how you first got interested in conservation and filmmaking? Thank you, George, for having me. My name is Gunjan Menon and I'm a wildlife filmmaker from India and my work mostly focuses on conservation filmmaking. I started off in wildlife filmmaking probably after uh, getting a master's in wildlife filmmaking from the University of West of England in Bristol. But I was always interested in conservation for as long as I can remember. I think I was about uh, three years old when I first uh, got uh, exposed to wildlife by my grandfather who had gifted me this book on the Amazon rainforest. And my mother tells me that I used to be addicted to the book and read it every night before I went to sleep. And uh, while other kids my age were uh, reading about Cinderella, I was getting fascinated by the birds of paradise. So I think that's where it started. And I always knew that I wanted to uh, do something in conservation, related to conservation. But eventually, as I started watching documentaries like Planet Earth and um, other documentaries that came out while I was growing up, I realized that I was enjoying, I was really enjoying the last 10-15 minutes of the documentary where they show how it's made. When I grew up, I just combined my passion for filmmaking and my love for wildlife into a full-time career. I'm a student currently going into that field as well, and you've pretty much described my childhood and how I got into it as well. Um, so it's really great to know that there's yeah people who were watching the last 15 minutes of those documentaries as well. Um, one of the reasons I know about you is your film, The Firefox Guardians, and the whole project with Red Pandas. Could you break that down for us? Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I made the Firefox Guardian as a part of my student degree film project. And we were supposed to make a 10 to 15 minute documentary. And I had been reading a lot, researching a lot about what I wanted to do. And I read that red panda numbers were dangerously low. And I really wanted to do something to highlight that. When I started discussing that with my friends, I realized that um, not many people knew what red pandas were. Like people were joking how they didn't even know that pandas came in red. So there was this urgent need to tell stories about red pandas and I decided that this is what I wanted to do. And so I read up more, I researched and started, um, I, I told my professors that this is the story I wanted to do. 
and they were a bit skeptical at first because very few people have seen red pandas in the wild and let alone film them so it was quite challenging and uh, to attempt something at that scale was quite difficult for me at that stage but eventually when i read this one article which uh, the headline was role of women in red panda conservation and i saw this photograph of about a row full of men and like and one woman standing there a native nepalese woman and that's when i knew that this is the story i wanted to tell and i wanted to highlight red panda conservation through menuka who's the lead character in my film so then everything like i pitched the story it got approved like they had their doubts about it but i was persistent and i finally got to go to nepal and we trekked there for uh, 12 days and eventually i mean there was a five hour trek every single day up and down into the red panda habitat and it was really uh, physically taxing with all the equipment we were trying to trek in the himalaya that was 12000 feet and wow. <laughs> it's crazy but and we were filming some interviews uh, on one day and we suddenly got a call that somebody had spotted a baby red panda up in the panda habitat so usually usually the trek that took five of us we ran up and it, we covered that in about two hours and it was crazy mm-hmm. i even like when i first saw panda that was one of the most magical moments of my life and um i even forgot that i was supposed to film and i was just staring at it and almost crying but eventually <laughs> i realized okay who am i to have to be filming so yeah then i guess that's it's this film is one of the most precious uh pieces of art that i've made till now Yeah that that sounds like a really incredible experience. I know there's a there's a lot of animals on my list that I'd like to see in the wild. Um I've ticked some of them off at zoos and sites around the UK, but I mean there's there's really nothing that compares to seeing um such a amazing and and endangered creature um so close kind of in in their natural habitat. There's really nothing like it. Um Yeah. I mean as I said earlier Um I'm a student going into this whole area so I'm really interested in the role like audiovisual uh work plays in conservation what's your your take on this how important would you say the work you do as a filmmaker is to sort of global wildlife conservation So visual media according to me is the most engaging form of media today and to influence anyone about conservation or to create awareness in general about any issue the masses first need to be informed in a way that they're willing to understand right so films bridge that gap between scientists and masses and what we try to do is include important messages and package them in a language and form that the masses would appreciate for example bbc's blue planet 2 that that was released and i i read that it had uh, it garnered higher trps than one of uh, uk's highest grossing entertainment shows and It, it's crazy how people were sensitized about the deeper issues of our planet's faces on a Sunday night when they had dinner. So no average person, at least in India, would otherwise willingly discuss ways to combat climate change on a weekend with family. But films are now changing the game, and it's a long way ahead. But at least it's beginning in the right direction, and it's all because of 
broadcasters realizing that we no longer can shy away from talking about difficult conservation issues earlier we couldn't talk about these issues uh, on television but now that's changing and that's thanks to that we're able to have difficult conversations and you know influence people more than uh, in a better way than uh, any time before like now it's it's a lovely time to be a filmmaker right now yeah i mean i was i was talking to someone last week about this because it is there's a whole thing that we say in the UK called the, I don't know if you call it the same thing, but the Attenborough effect. So yeah, it's like, it yeah, that. Ju- just that little exactly. segment in the last episode changed episode, so yeah. much. And it's now highlighted um, kind of how there's been these people and different groups who have been fighting for change for so long, for decades. And then their stories have only been able to be told because of, uh, TV shows or films, and it's just yeah surprising how um, how little was known about these things in the mainstream. Although people were fighting like plastic pollution, for example, for years, for decades, there's not really been anything uh, about it until that show. Um, so yeah, I definitely and also like now people climate change is no longer a debate thanks to shows like these. Like now we know that it is happening and how governments need to act and i believe even plastic was banned as a result of uh, that show right in the uk single-use uh, plastics there's some big steps not quite like the government they started listening to uh organizations right. like surfers against sewage there is a lot of uh good progress happening but we're not quite there yet we still have a long way to go and um, i did one segment for uh, like the digital version of Blue Planet to live as well. We did a story about baby Oliver turtles, and it was amazing how uh, I could have a conversation with people and people who would generally not be conscious about uh, being polluters or anything like. We connected. We (laughs) sort of pulled them into hearing about conservation. We showed baby Oliver turtles and then connected that to conservation by telling them. Like, when you go to the beach, if you don't clean up after yourselves, then, in a way, you're killing these cute baby turtles that you're liking. <laughs> so, that I'm really exploring this new form of conversation now. Conservation conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like really, it's... um. really exploiting it's definitely a big thing. I think a lot of the people in the UK, I did a bit of work um, as a fundraiser last year uh, for Greenpeace. And so I know yeah. talking to people like face to face and getting such a wide range of the UK population, I know that a lot of people will think that our uh, recycling is great and they'll just put things in the correct bins and then they'll forget about them. But they don't really look at the actual, like, what happens after the bins get taken away. They don't look at the actual systemic right. issues that need to be solved within our recycling systems and our ocean health and, like, how the ocean is still getting polluted. Um, and they kind of just do their bit, in the which is great, and then they just forget about it. And they don't really... So I think programmes like Blue Planet 2 reaching such a big audience really is is fundamental in educating people as you said just judging by your instagram you've been to some pretty amazing places around the world um is there a particular place or or rather a particular project that you've 
that you felt has been really important to you, like a like a defining moment in your career as a filmmaker? Mm, defining moment in my career would be the Red Panda film only because that sort of um, got me started with the weather and it, it sort of paved the way for my future that, okay, this is what I want to be doing my entire life. But apart from that, I once I was back in India, I worked on a series called On the Brain where we filmed with eight different species that were endangered and about their habitats, about uh, how there are grassroots conservationists trying to protect them. And that that aired on Animal Planet and Discovery. And that was a huge uh, learning curve for me because that was the first time I was working on a television show. And I learned a lot about how important it is to tell good conservation stories. And they brought conservation to mainstream television in India. And that that was a huge uh, huge step in taking wildlife lessons forward here. Because um, we were talking about issues on prime time that weren't talked about before. Usually it's all about cute fuzzy animals <laughs> that... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that right. People like watching that we were talking about different issues like uh, the habitat degradation or poaching, and also like not just showing the problems but the solutions. People on the front lines who are working to protect animals. So that that really that show really helped me understand how important storytelling was for conservation. So um, with one of the episodes, what we did was we spun it off into an educational program. Uh, we tied up with an organization called Agumbe Rainforest Research Station. And the episode was on King Cobras. So we turned that into an education documentary called Living with the King. Now, what was happening on one part of India, and this is a problem in many uh, Southeast Asian countries as well, that people are in conf- uh, constant conflict with King Cobras. Now, because of the sheer size of a king cobra, king cobras are the longest venomous snakes, right? So because of the sheer size, people just get scared and kill a king cobra. Whereas it is proven that unless, like, if you just let a king cobra be, it will never, ever bite you. Um, Yet the number of conflict cases were really high. So there's a village in Karnataka in India where people peacefully coexist with King Cobras because there's, there have been outreach programs there where uh, rescuers have gone and spoken to people and now they've realized that it is possible to live with King Cobras. So we made a film there about how people coexist with King Cobras and just about the general behavior of the King Cobra. It's the only snake that builds a nest. It's a very gentle, beautiful snake. So a film about that. And then we took it to places um, that are in conflict with King Cobras to show them that their brothers and sisters in another part of India are actually living peacefully with King Cobras. And uh, I've been told that the results have been really nice. Now people, instead of killing a King Cobra, pick up a phone and call the rescuers. So that's, that's an amazing success story that shows that Films play a very important role even at the grassroots level where uh, even as educational tools where people 
can be shown. Like if you go and tell someone not to kill a snake, that's not as effective as showing them that their farm, like there are other farmers who are coexisting with the species. So that that film is also very special for me because of the impact that it's had on this beautiful species. Yeah, I think that's really important because, as you said, a lot of people, when they think of conservation or endangered creatures, because they get shown the um, creatures that will bring conservation charities a bit of like funding, they get shown the fluffy creatures. They get shown the, the wildlife that is like, you know, a panda or a polar bear or a tiger. Um, and that's, I think, sort of often distracts from all the little things, they don't really look into that a lot more creatures are endangered. Um, One of the animals that really is big in mainstream conservation is the rhino. Um, There's three of your Instagram posts that when I was scrolling through a while ago, just having a look at your your photos, um, they really caught my attention, which is the rhino dehorning. Um, you describe this as a very intense experience and there was some really, let's just say, interesting comments on those posts. It's a subject that often invites a lot of debate. Uh, could you talk about that experience and also why you think kind of, I don't know, cutting horns off the rhino as a anti-poaching tactic is so controversial to a lot of people? Right. So, um... We witnessed this as a part, had gone to South Africa for a conference, the news conference, and I was talking about the role of women in my life, filmmaking. And uh, they had taken us uh, to witness this conservation effort of rhinos being dehorned. And um, it, was, it was actually a surprise for us because they had taken us and we, we didn't know what to expect. And we, we saw this beautiful, magnificent animal being darted in front of us and then their horns being chopped off. And it was very difficult to watch because we are deforming a beautiful creature to save it from our own species. And the irony, the sheer irony of it is very difficult to digest. But um, they also told us that... Uh, it, that those efforts to dehorn were the only reasons that rhinos in that game deserve are alive today. And one story uh, that someone told me that is still, is still with me, it, I, I was just pointing out to the moonlight one day that, oh, it's a full moon, it's so beautiful. And he said that full moon, you probably find a full moon beautiful, but for us that means a rhino is getting killed today because the, the poaching is so rampant in those areas that full moon means that poachers can easily get into the forest uh, with enough light and without using torches because when they use a torch then they're, they're caught but with a full moon enables them to easily get inside a forest inside a reserve and poach a rhino so <laughs> i've never been able to look at the moon the same way again but coming back to uh, um, why dehorning is a controversial issue it's because some people are again, some people think that there are other ways of conservation, which is true. Like, for example, in India, we are we are using rangers to protect rhinos here. Also because uh, dehorning is an expensive affair and we actually can't afford that. The cost of helicopters, the cost of professionally trained vets. But 
this this is uh, working really well in South Africa, and there it it is cool. I mean, when you look at it, but then if this is the only reason that rhinos are alive in that reserve, then it is a necessary evil, and I guess I prefer that to rhinos being killed for their horns. What what is a rhino horn? It's skeleton. It's the same material as a fingernail, right? But Mm. Someone someday decided that it it was of economic importance, and then they just go around killing dinosaurs for that. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's kind of one of the species that attracted my attention just generally as a as a kid, as a child. I, I kind of always felt very strongly about rhino conservation. I think again because it was just readily available to me. People were talking about it a lot in the UK. Um, but I guess that right. it's just such a such a um, deep rooted thing in a lot of cultural medicine, as you said. Someone somewhere decided it helped something, and now it's. I mean, it's um, more. It's a bigger commodity, I think, illegally than like gold or um, drugs. Um, yeah, it's called the black gold. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy that I heard uh, someone talking about this on a on another podcast a while ago um about how it's it's street value i think is like a few times more that of uh, cocaine illegally um which is just crazy because it is literally just as you said the same materials as our fingernails to think of selling your fingernails for you know millions of pounds that's just not really uh, conceivable to a lot of people you, you mentioned that you studied at the University of West England in Bristol. How important would you say taking that route, the sort of academic university route, into wildlife filmmaking is, as opposed to kind of being self-taught or internships or things like that? I think both of them work really well. For me, it was a really great way to connect and network with uh, professionals from all around the world. And that's and the course mainly focused on how to tell a good story, which was very important to me at that point. And otherwise, I, I know a lot of filmmakers, a lot of good filmmakers who have never gone to a university. And they've just learned on the job. And I think it's just what's, what's better for you, however you want to do. I've done internships as well. And both are great ways to get in the industry. It just depends on where you work and where you're from, what what access you have in the industry, if you're getting internships or not. But I, I think nowadays it's just people are very helpful and if you just keep writing to people and ask them for advice and um, professionals are very helpful at me. So a lot of my friends have done it that like they've just assisted cameramen by writing to them and uh, they, they they take them along and that's a great way to learn on the job as well. So it just depends on what you want to do and how quickly and what you they're just two ways to the same destination. So that's a great answer because I think a lot of my friends and my peers who are going into it through the academic route will be really interested in that. Um, I'm starting a course in specifically wildlife photography. There's a lot of people, me included, who don't know what they want to do after that and sort of how many connections that will give them after that. Uh, I've been asking all my guests this question 
Um, but obviously we are currently in lockdown. We discussed this a bit at the beginning um, because of the COVID-19 crisis. Well, I know uh, internally a lot of countries are opening again, but a lot of borders are still closed. How has the pandemic affected your work and the projects you had going on before this all started? So, George, I've been very fortunate in that sense because I had just returned from a shoot in March and the moment I returned a few days after that, the lockdown was announced. So I am in a very good place because we have edits going on and thankfully Mm. we have an edit station at home. So... My husband and I, we just editing what we shot. So that way, we still have work going on. So the lockdown hasn't impacted us as much as probably others are struggling. A few of my uh, shoots have gotten cancelled and we're supposed to be helping with a certain climate change and a few from Netherlands are supposed to come, but that's all up in the air now. But I guess we're doing okay because we have lots of edits going on, thankfully. The timing worked out really well for me. And it's been announced even like a, like even a few weeks before then, uh, before then when it was announced now, then we would have been massively struck because as freelancers, it's very difficult to survive without work uh, during the lockdown. I come from a family of freelancers, so I definitely understand that. Um, most of the people who work in my family are um, freelance creatives in some way. So I know how, how tough it can be, but it's good to hear that your projects are not too up in the air. Before we finish, we're just going to do a little quick fire round. So first off, what's your favourite animal? That's probably understandable given what <laughs> given what we've spent a lot of this podcast talking about. Where is a place you like to go and connect with nature? Somewhere you feel like really at home in, in nature and the wilderness? Rainforest. I mean, nothing better than rainforest. I just, that was the first forest that I went to. And that's where I knew that I wanted to keep doing this for life. So, yeah. Do you have a conservation hero? There are quite a few. I think that that answer, it's unfair to ask that in a rapid fire question. I mean, I look up to Jane Goodall and David Attenborough. There's so many people who are doing amazing work. It could be all the forest guards that I meet on my shoots because they're, they get the least out of it. I mean, they're not paid really well, but they're so dedicated and compassionate towards animals. So it's always inspiring to look at how they selflessly work for the wildlife in their region. Last off, how do you take your coffee? I take my coffee with lots of sugar and black. So yeah. I think we'll be able to wrap it up there, but before we finish, I want to ask you, where can people find you? What are your social media, online handles? Yeah, so uh, I'm mostly active on Instagram, so people can uh, look me up. That's Gunjangalbook at Gunjangalbook, G-U-N-G-O-N-G-L-E book. It's like the jungle book with my name is Gunjan, so it's a funny <laughs> Yeah, that's great. So, uh, and um, the Firefox Guardian is not up online, but I do share, I would love to share uh, the password of the film if someone's interested in watching. So if you just DM me, I can share the movie's link and password with you. Yeah, that's great. I'll, uh, I'll make sure people know to do that in the description as well. 
Thanks again to Gunjun for taking the time to talk to me today. All the links to her social media will be in the description down below and over on our Instagram page at Coffee with Conservationists. So I said at the start of the episode that we had a new coffee to try out. And while talking to Gunjun, I had a really nice cup of coffee from Hasbeen, which is an independent coffee company based in Stafford in the UK. This was a recommendation from some of our friends in the coffee industry, and I absolutely love this coffee. When sourcing coffee for this podcast, I make sure it's as ethical and sustainable as possible. And I really respect Hasbeen's commitment to visiting their farms and making sure the workers are paid fairly, plus get a premium as well. This particular coffee is a biodynamic coffee grown in India. All the information on this coffee will also be down in the description. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationist podcast.